Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Aaron Montgomery. Aaron is an entrepreneur, speaker, and author, recently completing his first book, Suspend Your Disbelief. Aaron is a three-time Inc. 5000 honoree and a two-time finalist for Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. But his biggest contribution may be sharing his unique and impactful life lessons. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. It's great to have you with us. Uh, I want to jump right into the book and the title, Suspend Your Disbelief. Where did that title come from? You know, for me, the, the title itself was evocative of a theme that, you know, was recurrent throughout my life. And that's just this notion of it's a theater concept. And that's just when you go see a play or you go see a movie, you can lose yourself in, the, in that theme, right? You can believe for that moment, for that hour or two, that Superman can fly, that people can live on Mars, that people can do anything. And when you relate that concept, that willing suspension of disbelief, the thing that allows you to enjoy that type of outing and, and apply it in your life, it's just a really powerful concept. And I really, I got that from actually my theater teacher when I was in high school. You know, we, we were putting on a production and uh, we were on this main stage where, you know, people, the expectations were really high. The production quality was really high. And we were coming in with this ragtag group and this ragtag set that really just didn't fit the theme. And we were all pretty bummed about it. And he pulled us aside and taught us this concept. He said, listen, if you believe that this set is beautiful, if you believe that this set is the town or the, or the, or the salon or the, or, the, or the airport or whatever it's supposed to be, then it will be. And you'll allow the audience to suspend their disbelief. And, and that sat with me. That's, that was 25 years ago. And that idea, you know, if you apply that to anything, like why couldn't it happen? Why couldn't it be this? And almost impose that will upon other people. It was, it was, it was a really powerful concept for me. That's really cool. Um, I, I want to get into some of the stories in the book, but but talk a little bit about um, your entrepreneurial background and how, how you got into business. I know you spent many years with car lots, uh, just in a, in a used car business. So talk about how you got into the business world. If there was ever a story that <laughs> embodied the notion of suspension of disbelief, it was that I, I started selling cars, frankly. I mean, that was, that was the beginning of my career. I was in high school. And uh, a gentleman who, uh, you know, the parent of one of my classmates uh, had a car dealership in the area. And I met him during my junior year of high school. And after I'd seen a couple of his commercials on television, I said, hey, Mr. Stewart, would you mind if I came and sold cars for you one summer or on the weekends or something like that? Totally expecting him to shoot it down and maybe counter with come and file papers or something like that for him. But instead, he said, sure, come to the office on Monday. And even then, I thought he would just give me the walk around, tell me about the business, explain what it was. But instead, he, he came through, he did all that, had me meet all his team, had me walk me through what the business was, walk me through how it worked, how it made money. And he offered me a job to come and sell cars for him. And that summer and the summers that followed, the spring breaks, the, the winter breaks, all the times that I could come back and make money, I worked with him and just fell in love with that business. And, uh, and it just had a huge impact. So throughout my career, you know, after spending some years with him throughout college, I went back to business school. I met another really awesome dealer that took me under his wing for the summer between uh, between semesters. And then, you know, afterwards, I spent some more time. I ran my own dealership for a bit up in Massachusetts, 
uh, before the 08 crisis and, and just really always had an affinity for that business. So by the time in my career, when I met my partners and we had the idea for Carlos, this consignment store for used cars, if you will, uh, it was just, it was perfect alignment for me because it was a thing that I always wanted to do. And, and finally a chance to chase the stream that I had been pursuing for a long time. But, but I say it's the embodiment of suspend your disbelief because I didn't have any parents in the business. You know, dealerships are super expensive. There was no reason to ever believe that I could be a car dealer. Mm -hmm. But I just figured that eventually if I, if I met enough folks, if I worked at it, uh, that, that I, could, I could meet some people in it. And, and that's ultimately what happened. And it was, it was a heck of a ride uh, from that point on. Dispel some of the myths that we, we hear about this business, the used car business. And how did you guys do things differently? I think a big part of it, Paul, is that a lot of those myths aren't myths. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> it was, it was learning how to be a part of something, but not let it be a part of you. So, you know, this was an industry and I was, I was very fortunate by the way that I worked for principal dealers who felt like they, they had an obligation to do things the right way, who were frustrated with the status quo uh, and wanted to change it. For example, that first dealer I worked with, he was one of the first one price, no haggle dealers in the country long before Saturn was doing it, long before it was a thing. He just felt like the haggling took a lot of the experience. And that's something that he unilaterally did for his business. So, so there was a lot of that. And, and even in the mentors that I chose, realizing that this business had some opportunity to grow, especially on the used side. But when we had the chance to build our business, we said, let's just take an honest look at the things in this process that people don't like. And let's see if we could take them out. Um, and, and some of those things we felt like, you know, we, for example, commission, we felt like when you pay somebody commission and you tell them, come work for me, but essentially you're working for free until you sell a car and I'll pay you for the, you know, the more somebody pays me or the less you can offer them on a trade and I'll pay you more. You kind of set up pretty bad incentives right off the bat. And it, it's not a surprise that people have trouble with that experience when, when you set that up immediately, as soon as they walk through the door, they know that they're a number on some, right. There's a number on their chest. So we said, let's take that out. And people said, well, how are you going to motivate people to sell cars? I said, I don't know, but like whatever's motivating mm -hmm. now is so bad <laughs> that, you know, I don't have much to lose. And maybe I can, maybe, maybe I motivate them by having customers that like to come in and see them. And there were things like that, the way that we set our hours, for example, you know, when I work in the business, it was a grind. Like you work, you know, nine to nine every day. You don't want to miss a Saturday. You don't want to miss a Sunday. You know, it's very hard to maintain a family life when you're never going to be home for dinner. You're really home on weekends. You can't make any games. You can't do any drop offs at school. So we had this much friendlier schedule. We were, you know, we wanted people to be home for dinner. We wanted them to enjoy their weekends. So all these little things that we did. And by the time we were done, there were probably a dozen of those things. The dress code, the language that we use, the paperwork, the way that we design the store, uh, the transparency of our contracts or agreements, all those things. And, and piece by piece, we said we can recreate this thing from what it was or what we observed to what we think it could be, then that would be a huge step forward. And that was really it. It was from the beginning, it was, if this works, awesome. If it doesn't, then great. I mean, it's like, then people can go back to doing what they're doing, which, is, which isn't any good, but, but we owe it to ourselves to try to make this thing totally different and not just incrementally different. And did you find that there was a payoff for the business in terms of your growth? Even sort of, how do you quantify the impact of doing things differently like you did? You could take the transactional view. I think that's a great question. You could look at the growth. I mean, we were able to attract more investment. We were able to open more stores. We were ultimately able to take the company public. We were able to, uh, to expand the footprint. I think that, uh, that that would be one measure. However, for me, and I remember those first nights when I saw people come in with their guard down, people 
coming back, repeat customers four or five, six times in the first two or three years, people telling their friends to come, people starting to use car lots almost as a verb, uh, people explaining to the, I'd be out and people wouldn't know I was affiliated with car lots and I'd hear them talking about it. Hey, I'm thinking of selling my car. You got to check out these guys at car lots, no pressure, no, right? People coming in, taking pictures with us and inviting friends. Mm -hmm. That The real impact to me was felt when you saw the difference. Like you could go into a to one of our stores, one of our hubs, and you could just feel the difference. Things were happening there that in my entire career, I had never experienced in traditional dealership. So for me, that was when I knew there, there was a tipping point here. And I saw that very early on. In fact, I had one of my good friends, an early investor in Carlisle. Uh, he, had, he hadn't been to the stores yet. And he came to visit. And the day he was there, a family came in. The dad was practically in tears. He said, I've been trying to buy my daughter her first car forever. Everybody's trying to take advantage of us. You guys were so different. This was so great. And here's my friend. He's an investor. He's like, did you pay these people to come in? Like, this is nuts. Like, I, said, I said, dude, this <laughs> happens a couple of times a week. Like it honestly did because people were just so taken aback by how different it was. So, so for me, that was it. When that, when those testimonials grew from the tens or dozens to the hundreds to the thousands, that's when I knew we were, we were on to something. And that was the thing that we need to focus on to keep scaling it. That's a very disruptive approach, but a really positive impact you guys have created. Now, now since then, I know you've gone on to be a chief strategy officer in another company, and now you're investing in smaller companies What's your focus today? You know, one of the things that, you know, through that experience, you know, again, since it was all, frankly, a, a very pleasant surprise for me, I, I didn't know when I started where my career would take me. I didn't realize uh, all, the, all the great possibilities on the other side. But, you know, once I got into a point in my career where I could be a bit more deliberate about the things that I focused on, and by that, I just mean when I wasn't relying on the next decision for you know, uh, for fulfillment and sustenance and this and that and that. It was more like, where can I focus uh, my energy to have impact? And where do I think we need to have more impact? One of those areas was uh, in, in closing the gap financially. For example, you mentioned uh, my work with, with Mission Lane, the fintech. You know, Mission Lane's focus was there's this huge gap in banking capability and banking products. And there's this huge swath. And by some estimates, there are 100 million plus what we call underbanked Americans. And if you think about that, you know, if you look at the number of adult Americans and you take hundred million over that denominator, like if they're that many are underbanked, then who's even banked, right? What does that even mean? But those are people that don't have ad access to adequate services, that don't have access to credit, that couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency if they needed it. So the company was focused on building products for those people. And throughout my life, I just realized as I had greater and greater good fortune, I'd find that that gap just, you know, was getting more and more disturbing. And it was something I could identify with because when I grew up, you know, it was, it was me and mom. My mother had to make a lot of choices, almost like, you know, walking on barefoot on broken glass type choices where it's like every, every decision was just fraud. It was always difficult. Everything was a challenge. And I watched her, you know, cut coupons for hours every Saturday. I watched her, you know, uh, deprive herself of any treats, of anything that would spend money. I watched her, you know, do whatever she could to save up for emergencies or, you know, how much she sacrificed to own her own house, how much she had to defer maintenance once she owned that house and how she had to be very, very critical about anything that she did. So a lot of these things that I personally experienced and had you know, almost taken personally, if you will, said, I want to now focus back on giving back some of that. So those, so things like finance, for example, uh, things like the education gap, you know, I was fortunate. I was able to go to a, a private school on a scholarship. Uh, it was a very expensive uh, proposition, one that I certainly could not have afford, given what I just shared with you about my upbringing. But I was able to go because a private foundation funded it. 
that foundation no longer funds private scholarships. So there won't be any more people like myself on that program. I went to Harvard. I had a very generous scholarship to go there. And, you know, the admissions rep that, that, uh, that brought me in and pled my case were still very good friends to this day. Fundamentally changed my life. But Harvard only has 1,600 seats in their freshman class or less than a couple thousand. So everybody won't have access to that. When I went to Harvard Business School, same thing. Like in, in executive education, there's a very limited number of seats. So I joined uh, a group called the Power MBA that's made access to executive education in particular uh, more broad. It's got, you know, it's more of a Netflix style approach where thousands of people can tune in and watch classes versus having to be in a physical space. So, you know, those things that were important to me when I look back and say, wow, I've benefited from these things or I've learned these things I wanted to share. And, and the ultimate culmination of that was, was my book. I wrote it during the pandemic. I wrote it for an audience, largely the younger reader. I wrote it to myself at 17 or 18 years old and said, if I could share something, even that, if I could help people avoid some of the mistakes that I made or have a different perspective that I wish that I'd had, here's what I want to give them. Or even just having access to the mentors that I had that a lot of people won't, I wanted to share some of that. So, so that's been the focus really, is I just kind of give an audit of my own life, see where I've been fortunate, see where I've had opportunities and say, where can I start to work to fill some of those gaps? Yeah, you're really focused on giving back. You know, you've been honest about the the benefits you've received, the breaks you've received, the opportunity, and realizes there's such a gap for most people that may not get that opportunity or may not get that seat that that you had the opportunity to get. It's a great uh, approach, Aaron, to to giving back. Let's dig in a little bit more to that background and maybe the story, some of the stories that you share in the book. Love to hear more about your upbringing and some of those early influences. You know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, my, my as I said, my immediate family was me and mom. So I'm an only child and uh, had a single mom. And you know, when I when I say that, people, I don't know what image it conjures up for a lot of people, but a lot of people assume, you know, that you know, my mom, she wasn't a teenager. We weren't, you know, we weren't barefoot. It wasn't, it wasn't this desperate situation. But it's hard. It's hard for a single parent at any stage, right? Like, you know, regardless of, uh, of, of your job, regardless of support you have, it's just difficult. So if nothing else, just watching my mom play multiple roles and watching the self-sacrifice and watching, you know, how she, how seriously she, she approached it and how much she invested in me just made a huge impression. Like I, when I think about the things that she gave up, you know, the vacations, the date nights, the things that, right, you know, that somebody else uh, her age or, or her peers might've done, it just, to this day, it's still, I'm dumbfounded by it. So it's just, you know, that was a very early, even then I appreciated, even as, you know, as a young child, I just knew that there was something special about my relationship with my mother. Um, she worked very hard. She was, you know, I, I remember going with her when she got her associate's degree and it being a really proud day for her and for my family and just realizing that even something like that, you know, this, there was something, I was only five years old, but I, was, I still remember the cap and the gown and what a big deal this was and this idea of, what power she had associated with education, right? So very early on, like, I mean, really young, you could just pick up that there was something different going on, that my mother was going to try to pay forward something different than she felt that she had. And since then, I've confirmed that with her, right? I've had conversations like, you seem so deliberate about this right out of the gate. I was doing math problems with my mom, two years old. She, you know, she was teaching me how to write in cursive. Like she, she just invested a lot. It's just, she just wanted to, to create this environment that she wished that she had and that she wished that a lot of other kids had. Uh, I think compounded with that, though, you know, while it was me and mom were very close, she had a larger extended family. She was one of nine children and exceptionally close with all her brothers and sisters. 
uh, you know, the in-laws weren't even in-laws. They were, everybody just felt like one big family. I had tons of cousins. My grandparents uh, were, were super close. I lived up the street from my grandmother. So this notion of having this village, right? <laughs> it takes a village to raise a child. I had one just in my own family. And that notion of the importance of family and looking out for each other and, and being there for each other was something that I also saw. I, I saw my, my grandmother just step in, whether that meant, you know, lending you something, letting you stay with her, giving you cash, whatever it was, like you just do what, you, what your family needs. And that sense of loyalty and belonging was a big early impression. But I'll tell you one of the biggest things that my family, my, both my mother and my extended family lent to me in those early days was, uh, was a tremendous, and I'm, I'm still grateful for it, was this tremendous uh, belief in yourself, the notion that, you know, if someone says that they can do something, you just encourage the hell out of them and let them go. And it doesn't matter what it is. If they want to play pro sports, if they want to be a musician, if they want to be anything, you just encourage the hell out of them and just let them go. And you never, and you don't doubt them. And the, and the best person for that was my mother's oldest sister, Aunt Ruth, who, you know, when I was five years old, just about to turn six, she asked me, what did I want to be when I grew up? And I told her, I don't know where I got the, in, the inclination for this. I think it was because Jesse Jackson had just declared that he, want, he was going to run for president in the Democratic primary that year. But I told her I wanted to be the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was five. <laughs> right? like, didn't, didn't miss a beat. Now, that, that was a tall order now. You can imagine then. There never been a black president. There never been. Like, I had no idea what the qualifications were. Um, but it was just what I said. My Aunt Ruth, without missing a beat, Paul, without thinking about it, without looking around, didn't even smile. She said, literally, in the next breath, okay, then, from now on, we'll call you Mr. President. Mm. And every single day, every single day from then on, on a phone call, in person, Hey, Mr. President, from then, I don't, she never used my name. From then on, I was Mr. President. Her, her husband called me that, her kids, Mr. President from then on. Paul, I saw this woman six years ago. We were having lunch and she was deep in the throes of dementia. Uh, could barely remember her own name, didn't remember her relationship with other people. So the lunch was largely me just kind of sitting there with her and her daughter was there. So we're kind of there and just kind of talking through things. and. She kind of chimed in and out, but largely didn't really know who I was. But at the end of the conversation, actually it was close to 10 years ago, at the end of the conversation, she said, Aaron, what are you doing now? And I said, I started this company called, called Carlots. She said, what are you going to do there? I said, I'm, I'm going to be the, the chief operating officer. This is my aunt. You know, she's 70-something years old, deep in the throes of dementia. And she said, when I told her that, she said, wow, I always knew you'd be president, but I didn't say of what? Oh, oh, I love that. <laughs> and she passed away three months later. And oh. that was like, and, and, and her daughter says that was one of the last lucid moments she had that she remembered even then. It, the last thing she did as I was just about to start this company was encourage me to go and take the reins. And I said, if, that, if there's anything I can do for anybody, and I, I credit my family with this, if there's anything, I, and, and they still to this day, long, they'll send me long texts. We're so proud of you. We're so proud of this. If there's anything I could do for anybody, is that. It's honestly, I would love to know that, you know, while I'm here, after I'm gone, somebody can say, man, I was, you know, I was nervous about this, whatever. But then I talked to Aaron and he said, right, like that, that, that's what I'd want to be if, if, if I could be anything. That's an awesome story. Um, give me another example of an early influence, maybe an early job or something that you talked about in the book. You know, one of the, the, the big influences in the book uh, is, is my grandfather. 
because, you know, the reason I, I took this approach with the book, the book is, is basically, it's not a big tome. It's not a big, uh, you know, it's not the traditional biographical, you know, I grew up in a log cabin, this and that. It's a book of stories uh, because as you've probably learned in the last 25 minutes we've been talking, I, I like stories. Like stories help me relate to the world. Stories are how I, how I uh, contextualize my memories and, and, and the things that are, are important to me. And I, I learned that from my grandfather. My grandfather, you know, he grew up, he was the son of a sharecropper, the grandson of a slave. Uh, he had a fifth grade education. And I said, when I say fifth grade education, I don't mean fifth grade 2022 education, fifth grade segregated South education. So probably equivalent of what a kid would get through kindergarten today, if that. And, you know, he, he couldn't read very well, but he taught himself by brute force. He'd bug the hell out of everybody else. Like he'd grab his Bible or the newspaper and say, hey, Paul, what's this word? <laughs> until, he, until he figured it out. But, you know, raw determination pressed through. But in spite of all that, you know, the fact that he didn't have a formal education, he was just a fountain of wisdom. And the way he related that wisdom to you was through stories, either sharing his favorites, whether they be stories from the Bible or some book of Proverbs or, you know, book of fables or something like that, or just that old country wisdom, the stuff that you just see as a boy when, you know, back in the days before iPads and, you know, social media, like you, you just learn by watching nature and just experiencing things and sharing your observations. And, you know, the, the good thing for me or, or the bad thing, depending on how much patience you had is, is Papa was a talker. <laughs> he, he could go and he didn't need a lot. He didn't need a lot to get going, but once he did, uh, if you sat with them, you could, I mean, a single conversation and you could pick up a PhD in life. And, and, and for me, you know, that time with him, you know, my grandmother passed when I was about 11 or 12 years old and I didn't want the old man to be lonely. So I spent a lot more time with him. And, he, and for those next five or six years, it's one of the, it was one of the greatest gifts of my life because it was every single day, you know, there's some new perspective, some new, some new idea. And frankly, just learning more about him. I mean, he was the kind of guy, he never took a day off work never took a vacation, never a sick day, tremendous drive, uh, tremendous discipline. And it was just a great person to be around. So his influence, not only in the types of stories or the fact that they are stories, those, 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 uh, those simple, the aphorisms that kind of guide the structure of the book, that's a direct influence from my grandfather. He could, he could just tell you the thing that he said, you know, uh, one of his favorite was, uh, you know, you're only good at what you practice. And, and, you know, he could just say that and you, you could short circuit the whole story because you knew what was coming. But like that was that was his thing is that he'd tell you things, he'd remind you things, he'd find the right application, give you that story. And that's what I wanted to try to emulate through the book was to give people a, a, a taste of that. In the materials, it really talks about how your target for the book isn't necessarily CEOs or entrepreneurs. It, it's young people. It's teenagers. It's my almost 16 year old son. Why is that? You know, when I thought about where these, yeah, you know, so when I, when I started to write this book, a lot of marketers, you know, you, you've got to have a clear target audience. I said, well, you know, the, the book is what it is. Like, I feel like there's some stories that I just want to get out and share with the world. Why don't I share them with people? And, and they tell me where it resonates. And I sent it to some friends. I had a group of about a hundred people. I sent, I sent uh, drafts of the book early on, early on. And a lot of them said, you know, listen, I love this stuff. I, and many of my business school classmates and my peers said, I shared this with my team. I read this at the board meeting. I use this example, you know, on my sales call. These are guys running, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. They said, but then I left the copy on the table and my kid picked it up. And I'm telling Aaron, my kid doesn't read. <laughs> and they devour it. 
And now they're quoting the stuff back. We're talking about it over dinner. Like they're, you know, oh. uh, they're asking me about this store or that store. They're saying it reminds them of stuff that I told them, but now that, now it resonates more. And it was like, you know, if that's the audience, I want to go all in. So I went back and I rewrote the book, focused on that audience. And I got a whole second win, Paul, because this time it was like, oh, this makes sense. If I write to myself at that age, the things I would say, the way that I'd relate them, the way I'd make it more understandable, it got more and more focused. And I'm grateful I went through that exercise because, you know, you can't be everything to everybody. Uh, great that people, uh, that it has, it has broader appeal, but I wanted to speak to a single avatar. And that person was, I said, 17 year old me, if I didn't have the benefit and I, and I asked myself the question, so what if you didn't get that scholarship? What if you hadn't gone to Harvard? What if you didn't, what if you didn't have that, that dealer friend who gave you your first gig? What if, what if, what if, what, what would you want to share with that person? Uh, if you could lend some of your privilege to them, what would it be? And that's what I wrote. Let's take a quick break. As a business owner, are you continually searching for less stress, more time freedom, and increased profits? Prosper for Business by Mackie might be the solution you've been looking for. Prosper for Business is both an executive coaching program and fractional CFO service designed to deliver exceptional results through increased education, visibility, and accountability. Prosper for Business graduate Jude Hemmen, CEO of Furlong Building Enterprises, said, The decision to work with Mackey was a life changer. They truly care about our success and give us the tools to do so. Working with the Mackey team also helped Julie Bach, owner of the Bach Group, see things in the business she hadn't seen before that led her to the business being more efficient, productive, and profitable. Does Prosper for Business sound like the right next step for your business? Visit MackeyAdvisors.com slash smallgiants. That's M-A-C-K-E-Y Advisors.com slash smallgiants to learn more. And now back to the podcast. I love that. Uh, great approach. And, and uh, I can't wait to, to put it on the coffee table for my son to grab uh, and read. I know he'll get a lot out of it. Growing up as a person of color, Aaron, did you experience unique challenges? I know you've got a great pedigree and background, but that made it at sometimes more difficult. You know, what was interesting for me was you know, growing up in Detroit, um, you know, in Detroit, I wasn't a minority until I got older. Right? Like, yeah. it was, <laughs> so, so a lot of what I knew is, is you know, as, as life, and it wasn't that the challenges didn't exist, they were just invisible to me. There was something that I wasn't as aware of for my grandparents who had migrated from the South, who had, you know, who had lived through the Detroit riots, who had a whole different story. They were more aware. Who knew what Detroit was before I was born? I, I always knew Detroit as this shell of a city. I didn't know what other cities were. I hadn't traveled much. I just didn't, I didn't have that context. But as I got older, and I think one of my first, one of my first points of awareness was when I got that scholarship to go to private school. And I don't, for me, it was a, it was a lesson in, I wanted this. I, I didn't, nobody forced this transfer on me. Nobody said, Aaron, you need to go here. I wanted this. I thought it would be good for me. And I, I think I was aware enough at 14 or 15 to make that move, but it wasn't easy at all. I mean, it was a big divide. It was only crossing a street into the next suburb, suburb over, but it was an entirely different world. The level of, of, you know, the socioeconomic gap, like the educational gap, like just, you know, the fluency that people had with different, uh, with different things that I was just completely unaware of. It was just a different world. And that was the first time I started to experience some of that. And one, one of those early challenges, you know, just 
some of those microaggressions that now we've brought to light and people are able to share more comfortably back then, right? Uh, getting stopped by a police officer on the way to football practice or, you know, having, uh, you know, a, a teacher or a parent say something out of pocket, you know, those kind of things were just part of the burden that you just had to have to carry. And it wasn't that people weren't sympathetic. It wasn't that uh, people didn't care. It was just, it was just expected. And the burden became the students. Mm. So for me, that was a hard, I'm, I'm grateful that the world has moved past it. I hope, I'm hopeful that we move further past it, but that's a lot for a 14 year old to carry. Right. I mean, it's, you can look and say it's better than it was. And certainly it was in a lot of regards, but that was a lot. Cause that's something I couldn't talk about with my peers. It's something that a lot of people would understand. It was a very unique, only a handful of us had that experience. So it created a bit of an isolation, even in a place where I felt a ton of love, where I had lots of teachers. I had lots of good friends. I mean, I, I felt a lot of love when I, when you asked me what I would associate with that three years I was in that school would be all love. But at the same time, uh, there was a bit of, there was a, quite a bit of loneliness because you know, you just, you realize for the first time in my life to that point, how different you are in so many different ways and how different some of those challenges are that you can't even explain. How do you tell your classmates? Yeah, I got, I got stopped by the police on the way to practice. And, and they're like, oh, that stinks. Like, no, it really stinks. Like I only got stopped because I look like this. I got asked a lot of questions. I was humiliated. You know, like, how do you relate that to somebody if they haven't had that experience? But I had it a bunch and that was a hard thing, right? As that started to compound you know, it can create a division that's not caused by the people that are there. It wasn't caused by me. It was just the reality of the world at the time. So interesting how really you didn't even know what that you were different in that sense up until that time in your life because you weren't really a minority when you first grew up, but, you know, crazy. Uh, so, so many early life lessons and things that have impacted you, people that have impacted you. How do you now use that? in the companies that you are either a part of or that you're investing in or that you you touch? How do you drive values, in these kind of values into the business? I think one of the things that I've been a firm believer in is, is, is a, this notion that people don't need to be told that they need to be reminded. So somebody's got to be comfortable being the reminder and, and sharing lessons and sharing stories and, and being you know, that uncle who's always telling us, now I've got to be Papa, right? Where like, there, mm -hmm. there are probably people on my team's Paul. <laughs> if you tell Aaron this, you're going to hear about, you know, the timeline of the time. But, but it's so important to me that people can avoid, people have clear thinking is what's important to me. It's not that they do what I did. It's not that, you know, they take heed to 100% of what I say. It's that they have the benefit of other people's experiences. Um, and I, what I've learned throughout my life is that for some folks, I think about my daughter who's five years old, you know, so she came into the world and, you know, I was running companies, we, you know, taking in public, we we're investing the things that she hears on the edge of the kitchen table at five are more than I knew by the time I graduated from Harvard business school, there's just benefit and being around some of these conversations, having, hearing from other people's experience, the things that you can just ask, right. As she grows up, Hey, Hey mom, dad, how would you, how would you approach this? It's just a difference. And for me, even at the company level, I think that's important for high potential leaders, next level CEOs to kind of hear, you're not alone in this. It was like this when I was there because I benefited so much from that tremendously. I wish I had more of it. I wish I had it sooner. So I think you infuse those values by sharing them openly, unapologetically and repeatedly. So people know what they're going to get. Uh, they can opt in if they want more. Uh, and, and what I found is the more unapologetic, the more unabashed, the more openly I share my values the more I get those side slacks, emails and texts, hey, Aaron, can we grab lunch? Because they can relate to something that I said. They want more of it. 
And they, and they okay, great. I, I found an ally. I found a soundboard. And that stands out. I think, especially now in corporate America, people don't want more of the same flat wall responses, you know, refer to the policy. They want to, they want to relate to other human beings. It, it, you know, it, and the human beings can be the carriers of the value. They can be the carriers of the culture, but they want to relate to other human beings. So I make it a personal priority to be one of those quote unquote human beings uh, uh, to share what I believe openly uh, and, and make it available for discussion. You know, you talk about setting goals and that you, you set goals confidently and trust that they will find you. What, is, what does that mean? I think it means when I, you know, I, I used to try to set very deliberate goals, resolution type things, lose, you know, smart goals and stuff that you're taught, but didn't spend nearly enough time thinking about what those goals will bring me, who I wanted to be if I accomplished those goals, what, what, how it would make me different or what, what it would mean uh, in, in terms of, of a change to my life or an impact that I could have on the world. And when I started to do that um, and, and start to envision, you know, what I wanted to be in the world or who I wanted to be in the world, how I wanted to show up, what that would mean, you know, as far as providing color and texture to my life, the goals just got easy because now they were just an extension of who I was becoming. You know, you could decide you want to lose a few inches off your belly. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you do, it'll be hard to keep them off. Or you can decide that you want to be healthy and vital and, and you know, and live to see your kids play, your grandkids play. You can decide that, you know, you want to be a better golfer, and maybe you shave a few points off your strokes, you know, a few strokes off your, off your game. Uh, or you can decide that you want to spend more time outdoors and connect with your friends and, and, and have fun doing it. And I just found that when I started setting goals in that mindset, they'd find me because that I, I, want, I desperately wanted to be the person that I laid out. Right. I wanted to be if I want to be more adventurous or if I want to be more, you know, uh, enjoy more of the world. I don't have to set a travel goal. I don't have to set a static visit three countries this year. If I decide that I want to be the kind of person that. Uh, enjoys more of the world, becomes more of a citizen of the world, then those goals will find me. That when those opportunities present, present themselves, I'll take advantage of them. So as I did more and more of that, I found that to be true. And, and, and to this point now, I just make wish lists. I stop making goals altogether. I just make lists. I, I define who I want to be. I start making lists that, that spell that out and start to spell out some of the activities that I think a person like that would do. And I find myself doing those things. The most, the craziest one, Paul, was Five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I said I wanted to, to be a pilot because I thought pilots were cool. I thought, they, <laughs> I thought they had a different perspective. You know, I thought that they had a different take on the world and, and I enjoy flying. And uh, never knew how I would do it. I took, my, I took a flying lesson some years later, enjoyed it. So I just keep taking these lessons learning. And then suddenly a year ago, a good friend of mine said, hey, I'm thinking of selling my plane. I said, here I am. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. I guess this is it. Right? Like, you know? <laughs> it's time. And now, you know, I go up, I'm up a couple of times a week. You know, it's a big part of, I think of myself now as a pilot, as a core part of my personality, or at least uh, where I'm headed with my life. And it's, it's a big part. But like when I started, I didn't know any pilots. You know, I didn't know. Same thing as being a car dealer. I didn't know. But like they found me. And I, and I, I believe in that. I don't mean that in a hokey, you know, just make a board and the universe finds you. I mean that I didn't commit to flying a number of hours or doing it. It was like I committed to, I spent more time around pilots. I wanted to learn the game. I committed myself to a discipline. And then those goals, they kind of come to you in that way because you're making a commitment to the process and not to the end. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. It's really just committing to a process and the, the rest uh, comes. I've always felt like life comes to you and that if you have those good values and you just put your head down and you work hard, good things are going to happen. Uh, and you just have to commit to that, to the journey and uh, then someone tells you that they're selling a plane. 
and, <laughs> and you know, and, and look what happens. Yep. Uh, so as you as you think about um, the continuing lessons uh, along the way for you, Aaron, what part of leadership do you feel like you still need to improve upon? You know, the part that I spend a lot of time uh, meditating on, and a lot the, the the part that I think is the most important is patience. It's it's hard to balance the urgency around what you see, right? The goal that you see, the goal that you're pushing towards and the patience with letting people autonomously get on board, letting momentum build and working towards it. And that's never been a strong suit. Uh, if anything, I'm infinitely more patient than I was, but it's only because I was so ridiculously impatient. <laughs> it's like, and when you start from a baseline like that, uh, it's hard, but you know, but that I think is a big part of that is, you know, being patient, letting people have the opportunity to come along uh, and, and everything not being, uh, you know, right now, this instant, because it compels a lot of bad behavior. You, you take it, you strip away autonomy, you strip away a lot of the fun, you strip away, you know, you create a, a, a mentality and a culture where the end is everything and the journey is nothing. And, and, and that's just all those things I found to be the exact opposite. My experience is the journey is everything. Like when you get there, you just, you decide to start again anyway. So it's like the journey is everything. Like learning to enjoy, you know, where you are being present celebrating the wins along the way. So that's where I want to spend more of my time now is thinking about how do I create more of that sense of patience? How do I settle into an organization more of that, that confidence and assurance? We're going to get there, right? Like we're going to get there. So let's, let's make sure that we're putting everything we can into the journey or into the process as we were just talking about. Well, those two seem to be working or can work against each other, right? If you're really talking about making wish lists, not goals, if you're committing to the process, you kind of have to be patient. And so you've learned to do that with yourself. And now you're even learning more to do that with other people and, and realize it, it could take a while. Uh, and that's okay. As you're thinking about the journey so far for you, Aaron, and, and just talking to somebody that is that 17 year old who's just starting out um, in their even education, in their career, what kind of advice would you give a young person? Biggest advice, and this is actually the advice I, I often give to young people, is to be crystal clear about what they want. Uh, you know, so I know so many folks, and this is it can be hard conceptually for a 17-year-old to pick up that and what it means. That's why I want to plant the seed as early as I can. But the understanding that as soon as you can realize that when you go, and it's something that Aunt Ruth taught me, <laughs> same one that called me Mr. President. When you look in the mirror, the only face looking back is yours. It's not your mom, it's not your dad. It's not anybody else. It's just, it's just you. It's not your favorite teacher. Uh, and, and that can be hard for a 17-year-old because mostly they're taught that approval is conditional, right? Like you get straight A's, you do good in this, you do good in that, you're a good kid. If you don't, then you need to work on it. If they're, if they're doing well, they've had a lot of pressure to continue to do well. And it can be hard when sometimes doing well is measured not in terms of the output, in terms of grades or things like that, but did you go into the career that you were supposed to, or did you fulfill your potential as measured by somebody else's measure? And I find that at my age, when I hear from my peers who weren't able to learn that lesson at 17 and they're burnt out and they're wishing they'd made different choices or they're wondering why they can't pull away from the thing now because they feel trapped or handcuffed to it, that that's the biggest regret that they have is that they weren't able to figure that out sooner. Not that they would have changed their life dramatically, but they would have tried more things. They would have tried, they, they would have taken more swings. So I want to encourage that 17-year-old to approach your life that way, right? Like to th think about, get crystal clear on where you think you belong and live up to that standard and not everyone else's. So I think the earlier they hear that, the better. 
because for yeah. me, I'm hell, even I'm 43 and it's still, it's a working process. Like there's, there are times when I have to stop and say, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for what I think other people would think for me? Right. And, and so I, I think the earlier you can get it, the better. Yeah, uh, that that's true. Um, at the same time, I've got a, a 20 year old daughter and uh, she, she feels a lot of pressure to be clear and and it, it's hard at that age it's hard to be clear they don't know what they want and i and i try to focus back to the values just back to the values because i feel like that clarity will come in time and it may not be something that you've got your finger on right now or you can really point to uh, but, but you do have to experience and try a lot of different things um, she just actually today starting a internship as a hospital because she's considering being a nurse but she doesn't know if she wants to see the blood and, yeah. and all that stuff so she's going to the hospital and saying all right let, let's see what this is like uh so um trying a lot of different things and i think that clarity will will come to you you know in those but you're giving her that freedom to explore and that's that's that's, yeah. the, that's the important part it's like it's you have to be clear on the thing you just have to be clear on the fact that you're going to be the only person looking back right? like like be clear on your voice being pro primary right priority and and she's the fact that she's working to find it means that you've given her that agency early on that that's exactly what i wish more kids had yeah it's just it's it's permission to be themselves and let them know that it's okay where that wherever they are today uh and you know you've got you've got a long way to go in terms of your contribution to uh young people and to business people, Aaron, um, just great success so far. I, I'm, I'm very interested in following your story. Uh, I, I want to just uh, hit you up with these last five quick hit questions, um, kind of like the association game. Um, maybe just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, name a leader that you look up to. Uh, Nick Saban. <laughs> ah, all right. Good one. Um, how, how about a book that influenced your leadership style? Why should white guys have all the fun? <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's great. Um, uh, what's your all-time favorite movie? Ooh, that's a tough one. I, so the, the formal answer is The Godfather, but the actual one is probably The Blues Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Um, both ends of the spectrum. And do you have a, fa a favorite TV series to binge watch? Ozark. Yes. I just watched season four, first episode last night. Uh, that's a great one. And yeah, what is something about you that many people don't know? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know that there's much that people don't know, but uh, but I once met Wayne Newton at, at the, in the Delta Lounge uh, during a flight to Las Vegas, and that was a <laughs> that's where one of my <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that that's great. Um, well, God, just so great hearing your story here. And I want to reflect on a few of the things that I learned from you today. Uh, and and so, much of it, so much of it, I think, is, is going to be in this book that uh, suspend your disbelief that you wrote and the short stories that you've shared with uh, about yourself. Um, and uh, just thinking back from, um, from high school and getting that first job selling cars uh, and uh, learning that how to be a part of something, not let it be a part of you, right? That, that you, when you had the opportunity to then start your own business um, and found the car lots that you took parts of business that you knew people didn't like and you just made them different. And uh, these small things, the commission, the hours, the dress code, uh, you just knew there was a different way to do it. You weren't afraid to make that change and, and you had all sorts of success doing that. 
Um, and, and really you've devoted your life now to um, looking at the, the gaps in the world, the financial gap, the educational gap, how you can give back because you benefited in, in great ways um, and, and you want to pay that forward with others um, in multiple ways. Uh, but it, this all came from the experiences you had uh, as a child, um, just the, the stories you told about your mom, the sacrifices that she made um, as a single mom and you as an only child. Um, just watching that and the appreciation you had for that is just beautiful to see uh, how proud you were when she got her, her uh, AA degree. Um, and yet you also benefited from her very large family and realizing the importance of loyalty and people looking after each other. It's just those early lessons of the values that were important that drove you. Um, and uh, I love the story about Aunt Ruth and just learning to believe in other people. Uh, asking, uh, when she asked you, you know, what do you wanna be? And you said, I wanna be president. And then she said, okay, from now on, we're gonna call you Mr. President. And uh, guess what? You became a president. Uh, right, that she was able to recognize in in, the, in those later years, and and uh, and I know that made you so proud. Uh, your grandfather, just that wisdom, the storytelling. Uh, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I I interviewed over video for five hours my my elderly parents, and and uh, the stories that I I heard from them, many that I hadn't heard before, were just incredible. I mean, we have so much to. Uh, to uh, appreciate the the hard work, the ethics, the values of those previous generations. And like you said, you know, it's a PhD in life. It's a beautiful thing that you were able to experience. And, and so uh, I love the fact that you wrote this book uh, uh, as if it was you at that age. And, and I think so many people are going to be able to benefit from that and hearing these stories um, uh, and how you've applied all of these lessons in the business world and into the relationships that you have and, and how important it is to listen to other people's experiences. And we may just be an N of one, but we've been around a while, we've got certain experience and, and the fact that you're able to share that in a way that impacts people is so important because like you said, we're doing business with people that we like. We're in the relationship business, no matter what business we're in. And, and if we can maximize those relationships, then everybody's going to benefit and we're going to build uh, better businesses as a result. Uh, I love the respect, your perspective on, on goal setting and that it's really just a wish list. And then you just dive in, you dive into the process of things that you're interested in and then good things will, will come to you. Um, and lastly, just the advice you give to young people um, about being clear about what you want and realizing that when you look in the mirror, all you see is you. All you see is you. You don't see anybody else. Uh, and and if you can take advantage of the influence those people have and will have on your life. But ultimately, the decisions, the direction is up to you. And uh, and you're a great example that you can do just about anything you want. So, uh, Aaron, wonderful story. I'll continue to follow it. And I really want to thank you for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on Twitter at smallgiantsbuzz. Until next time.